Today's episode is sponsored by CISO, S-E-E-S-O, the new premium comedy streaming service made for the serious comedy connoisseur. They really do have a whole bunch of awesome stuff on there. I know like the Kids in the Hall catalog is on there, a lot of uh, great sketch comedy. They also have this new original series, Bajillion Dollar Properties, uh, which was created by Kulab Valesek, which is... uh, it premieres on March 17th. It's a half-hour, semi-scripted comedy about the cutthroat world of luxury real estate in L.A. It's Reno 911 meets Million Dollar Listings. Um, I have never seen Million Dollar Listings, but I have seen Bajillion Dollar Properties, and it's really good. Uh, you would do well to check it out. Uh, it's got, in, in addition to Kulop, it's got Paul F. Tompkins, who is always great. Uh, it's, it's got uh, Dave Keckner, Jason Matsukas, uh, Horatio Sands, Andy Richter, uh, it's executive produced by friends of the show, Tom Lennon, Robert Ben Garant, uh, and Scott Ackerman, uh, you know, of Comedy Bang Bang. So check it out. The sure to be hit, Bajillion Dollar Properties, is only available on CISO.com. Sign up now for only $3.99 a month to stream the first two episodes, and new episodes come out every Thursday. Uh, poke around online and find some stuff about this. It's a really good show, and CISO is doing some really cool stuff. Now entering. Nerdist.com. A couple of great live panels coming up in April. If you're in Los Angeles, hey, why don't you come to these? They're going to be fun, and you can get your questions answered. Uh, April 14th, the Conan writers, uh, including the head writer, the former head writer, all the staff. It's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, These are funny, hilarious, smart people. You should come see them talk. Uh, That's on April 14th. And then on April 24th, it's a big panel with Mike O'Malley, who wrote for Shameless. He's also an actor and comedian. He's been around for years, and he's a great guy. Uh, ben Queen, who created A to Z on NBC, has a new pilot this year. Hugh Sturbikoff, also a robot chicken guy, also has a new pilot. Uh, we have the Misha Green and Joe Pokaski, the uh, creators of Underground on uh, WGN. And finally, Stephanie Weir, uh, formerly a writer and actor on Mad TV. She wrote for the Millers. She is terrific and funny and worth your time. That's on April 24th. Come see both of these. Go to writerspanel.tumblr.com for links to tickets. Follow me on Twitter at Ben Blacker for links to tickets. Uh, they all benefit A26LA. So you're doing a good thing for the world and yourself. Hope to see you there. Welcome to the Writers Panel. I'm Ben Blacker, the creator and moderator of the podcast. I created the show because I wanted to talk to writers about the business and process of writing. I've had more than 400 writers on the show, so go back and check the archives. I'm sure you'll find more creators and more shows that you're interested in. I'm a writer myself, having written with my partner, Ben Acker, for Supernatural, Puss in Boots, FX's Cassius and Clay, among others. We've also written comics from Marvel, Image, Dynamite, and more. We created a show called The Thrilling Adventure Hour. Maybe you'd like it. Go to thrillingadventurehour.com for more info. Let me know who you want to hear on this podcast by following me on Twitter, at Ben Blacker, like the color, only more so. Uh, And follow me on Tumblr at writerspanel.tumblr.com. And if you enjoy the show, please leave a review on iTunes. It always makes me feel good about myself. They write, they talk, and talk about what they write. Tune in tonight, or whenever the time is right. It's the Writer's Panel with Ben Blacker, and it's starting now. Oh, yeah! Ben Carlin, what is going on? Uh, um, wow. I wanted to, I wanted you here because 
in addition to all of the amazing things you're out of writers in LA zero (laughs) percent you're out of everyone this is it yeah you're the very last one (laughs) exactly um no you you know I want to talk about all of the stuff you've worked on because you've had an interesting career and you've gotten to work on a lot of cool things but I specifically wanted to talk to you now because you do have several pilots in contention which is kind of unusual yeah, it is unusual. Um, they make so few, and they order so many. <laughs> True. Um, uh, so it does feel like the odds are better, but it also means there's definitely going to be disappointment. So. <laughs> um, so let's talk about, uh, are you under a deal somewhere? Yeah, I have a okay. deal with ABC Studios. So you so brought them a couple of ideas. I brought the studio this year. This is the second year of the deal. Um, last year, I brought them two things. One for the network, the other for um, that we spec'd. I, we, 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 I wrote it with someone else. I wrote it with Adam Pally. Mm-hmm. Um, and we brought that out, and it was kind of a weird hybrid show. And What never, is that? Can you talk about it? Um, I would love to talk about <laughs> it. Um, it's, it's, uh, it was so conceptually ambitious. It was probably too ambitious for it, its own good. We probably should have simplified it, but we kind of fell in love <laughs> with this idea. This was kind of pre—this this was pre-serial even, hmm. but it was basically the idea of kind of in the spirit of like a Garth Marenghi. It was like a lost sure. cooking show, cooking travel show that never aired because the host— uh, was accused of murdering his co-host during production of the show. And uh, Wait, where did even come from? First of all, Garth Marenghi never comes up on this oh, show. I, I love and Garth People Marenghi. should know about it. I love it. Garth It's Marenghi. so funny. Yeah, oh, yeah. I think it's available. I think people can Oh, yeah, you can it. see the entire series yeah. on YouTube. Yeah, definitely. And people should check that and out. And they were, I think they were showing it on Adult Swim. I, I, think, oh, that, I think it was definitely airing for a while because I would periodically in like weird bars, I would see it on the TV. I'm like, they have funny. Adult Swim on or something. So they were running them. There's only like six of them or eight of them or something like that. There's a small number, so it's easy to tear through the series. Um, but Garth Marenghi is basically um, a fictional character who has created uh, this uh, entire uh, persona, uh, and not only that, but has done a TV show uh, based on his, um, I guess you would call them like cheesy pulp novels, mm-hmm. and it was like an 80s haunted hospital TV show with horrible oh, production so value. Funny. And the premise was that show never aired um, because people just didn't get it. It was ahead of its time. Mm-hmm. And then he had, you know, rewon the rights to the show and was now presenting it, you know, with right. his own kind of narration and interrupting and explaining the nuances of it and also some of the production challenges. And it had, you know, you're jumping back and forth in time between Garth and the present and the show, which was, you know, had a very 80s feel to it. <laughs> and it was it's bananas it's funny it's like a genre takeoff um it's super well performed uh you know um Garth, I'm totally spacing. I, um, I remember his, his name. name. Richard Ayoade. It plays mm-hmm. Dean Lerner, who then had another TV show, yeah. uh, which was a talk show. Oh, and now he's on director. He's actually yeah. a, an up and coming director. He's done a bunch of like, I want to say he did like um, he did Franz Ferdinand videos. He did some videos. He I'm did really like an indie British movie. Yeah, Submarine. Really he did a movie like, called yeah. Submarine, and he did a bunch of really cool videos for like one of those bands. It's either like the Arctic Monkeys or Franz <laughs> Ferdinand, like one of those. This is why I should have Google on all the time, but you know what I mean. Um, anyway, it's, it's interesting to hear you talk about Garth Marenghi because it's not that's not something that American TV does often or great. Like that no. commitment to 
the character to the world. So, so let me let me tell you the origin of this. So, so I loved Garth Marenghi from years and years ago because this is a show that's probably ten, right. fifteen years old. Okay. And when I was under a deal uh, at HBO, um, right after I left The Daily Show, um, I had this idea to get the rights to Garth Marenghi mm-hmm. and do an American version with Paul Rudd, um, and it was going to be called. Paul Rudd's Time Blader, <laughs> and the premise was going to be, similar to Garth Marenghi, the premise was going to be that uh, this was a show that Paul Rudd did in his youth before he uh, had achieved any level of fame. He, didn't even, he wasn't even named Paul Rudd at the time. He had like some ridiculous, <laughs> like, Paul Rudenberg, you know, some like crazy, like, super Jewy name. Um, and he had done this show about a guy, kind of in the spirit of, remember the show Voyagers uh, or Quantum Leap? Sure. It was in the spirit. It was a guy who had, it was set in the 80s, and it was a guy who had come upon a magical pair of rollerblades, because rollerblades were trendy in the 80s, and he could, when he's wearing the rollerblades, he could travel through time and fix problems (laughs) that that happened in the past. The only problem was he could only travel through time and be in the past or the future while wearing the rollerblades, which made it very difficult when he was going places that didn't have roads (laughs) and flat surfaces. Um, and we had this whole arc. It was, we were going to do six of them for HBO. And we had this whole arc where he, again, it was like this show was ahead of its time. I don't know why they didn't air it. <laughs> and we were going to do this whole thing where the like kind of the er narrative was going to be that while he was doing this show, he was spiraling into drug addiction. <laughs> so, like, it got crazier and crazier. And he got jealous uh, of his you know co-host, which was like a talking like banana or something. And uh, not his co-host, his uh, co-star. Yeah. And. So anyway, we had this whole thing, and you know, as these things are wont to do, like Paul's career kind of blew up, and he wasn't no longer available. My deal with the HBO lapsed, and the idea got shelved. But did it actually go through the development process? Well, no. Paul and I worked on it for a bunch, you know, and we started kind of developing it, and we were secured the rights and the blessings, most importantly, um, from the the Garth Marenghi team. And uh, but we never were able, basically, to do it in the time frame I had because my deal with HBO ended, and that's what happens in these things. Deals just lapse. So I had that idea in my head. I always, you know, I, you know, listen, coming from the onion and everything, I, I love meta humor. I love, mm-hmm. you know, humor about humor. So uh, I've always thought it was really cool to kind of do something that, uh, that exists on kind of like a couple different planes of reality. Um, and so I started meeting with Adam Pally, who I'm a huge fan of and I love his work. And he's also in a deal at, a, at ABC mm-hmm. right now. So this was a couple of years ago. So I basically pitched him all of this. <laughs> he was familiar with Garth Marenghi. And we just started brainstorming, and we were trying to come up with, like, we can't do an 80s show because, first of all, Adam's too young right. to play someone who was, you know, <laughs> working in the 80s. But also, like, it feels like television has changed so much that, like, a genre parody of that nature just didn't feel mm-hmm. particularly topical. So what we came up with was, like, a travel cooking reality show, like, you know, one of those run and gun, no sure. reservations, yeah. in your face, I'm going to eat a cricket, look out, you know, <laughs> one of those kinds of things. And... Um, we, and we just started love talking about, I had worked with like Mario Batali before and he had done some stuff with Anthony Bourdain and we just love these personalities, these big, larger than life, brash, you know, usually like very egotistical, um, chefs. Mm -hmm. And we thought that's like a really fun character to bite into. So we started talking about the character and he had loved the idea of, you know, this show that doesn't air. So what's the circumstance under which it didn't air? And then we were like, (laughs) well, what if, like, what if like this guy who is such an ego? 
egomaniac, like while doing the show, someone else starts stealing his thunder and that person mysteriously dies during production of the show and he's accused of the murder. And what if the show that we're doing you know, in the present is him coming out of hiding or coming out of, you know, uh, seclusion. Um, And finally, the footage is no longer under like the statute of limitations or or like the, you know, the government in Thailand has released the footage after holding it for 10 years. Like come up with some kind of crazy reason why the footage is now available tied in with him coming back. So he gets to play crazy rock and roll chef from 10 years ago and his like wise kind of like post, you know, (laughs) like all white robes, you know, like that. Is that part done documentary? That part like, was done more documentary, kind of in the, the spirit or something. In the st- spirit of the staircase, which was a big reference for us. Serial was obviously airing, mm-hmm. you know, while we were kind of doing this, and we're like, it has a kind of serial feel, um, and. You know, and we had a whole host character, and we came up with a the oh whole relationship God. in the present and the past between the host and 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 Adam's character. <laughs> and so uh, Adam's character was named. Uh, California Hutchins, Callie, and the name of the show was California's Adventures. <laughs> and it's not California Adventure, no, it was California's <laughs> Adventures, which is why he argued it was usable. Oh uh, you know. So we had, it was really, I mean, so much fun to come up with. <laughs> and so it was the type of thing, we pitched it, and we were like, you know what, we don't want to pitch this, we don't want to go around town and pitch this, we just want to write yeah. it. So we wrote it, and it's just one of these things that... Um, you know, we had a really good shot with it. You know, it was at Comedy Central, it was at Netflix, it was, you know, a bunch of different places. And, you know, there's some people that wanted to develop it a little more. And, like, we're not going to go develop after we wrote the script, you know, like, you're either going to, like, oh, and here's the other thing. <laughs> I forgot the biggest thing. Oh. We weren't pitching it as a pilot. We wanted it, we wanted to do 10 of them, and we weren't going to, like, we weren't going to do a pilot. <laughs> it's like, you have to commit to a series oh on this God. bananas idea. Who are you? <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, you know what? Listen, I mean, <laughs> There was there's there was an argument because the way we wanted to shoot it, we actually wanted to shoot it practically in mm-hmm. you know real places. We wanted to do a portion of it in the studio. We wanted to write it like a movie. We wanted to do it like the way they did uh, the Wet Hot American sure. Summer. No, um, that totally thing, you know, makes sense for a write a four hour movie. Yeah. board it you know like a movie. You have your you know five weeks over on the road and you, you know, do a couple of European cultural capitals. You do a couple mm. kind of like places that work for a couple of different places. Yeah. And then you do a bunch, you know, whether it's in LA or Atlanta, whatever. And it, that's how you'd make it responsibly, you know, for, uh, for a budget. But that's a big commitment, you know, that's a huge commitment. Um, so that it was, it was ambitious. And Wait, so what, so you would send the script out and, and I assume, you know, meet with whoever was running. Yeah. We met all, we met all, it. we met all over town on it. What we, kind we of did. reactions did you get? What what did you get from the people who were interested? Um, you know, most of the people were interested, I think, mainly in me and Adam as just like, <laughs> yeah, like you guys have good credits. Like, we like you guys. Oh, um, uh, you know, I think it was very hard. You know, people want things to be kind of simple and understandable. And most of the stuff that isn't that that works um, just kind of worked either by accident or is like super cheap. So it doesn't mm-hmm. matter. This was none of those things. Yeah. Um, so it was it, we knew it was challenging and we just felt like 
you know, you you have to at a certain point you just have to write the kind of stuff that gets you excited. I mean, if you're just trying to like Absolutely. read the tea leaves of the industry, I just don't think good work is going to come out of that. At least for me, and I know Adam is you know is that way as well. So we really need to do stuff that we were excited and interested in, and we felt like this kind of cross section of this you know kind of true crime, you know, this kind of fascination with this you know kind of like Amanda Knox public trials. Mm-hmm. His character had been through a crucible of you know of these trials, and he was guilty, he was innocent, nobody knew for sure, you know, it was still a mystery unsolved, you know, lots of competing narratives, you had all this found footage, Mm -hmm. you know, we felt like it was combining a lot of things that were very much a part of, you know, kind of pop culture right now, but because it was combining so many of them, it didn't really necessarily feel like it was one thing. And mm-hmm. I feel like that, I mean, I'm just trying to literally like, I can't even think like an executive. I'm just trying to think like creatively, like if you're trying to like kind of deduce why that didn't work, that would probably be the reason mm-hmm. I would give. Um, this is the longest I've ever talked about a project that is <laughs> never going to happen. That no one's Those ever going to see. <laughs> and uh, I'm uh, re- unrelentingly sad about that's it. That's <laughs> crazy. So is it is it dead? Is it totally I mean, you know, as long as, you know, like we're still working, I mean, it's something that we could potentially sure. like dust off. I mean, it felt felt very of the moment when at, coming off of Serial, mm-hmm. you know, a comedy, you know, procedural, yeah. a comedy, you know, kind of true crime thing. It ha- you know, yeah. I'm sure there's a bunch in development I now. I like they have to go through the drama fra- phase first. Yeah. You yeah. Know, but, like, I mean, like that, that is a lot happens. of drama, though. If you look at, oh, sure. you know, if you look at before... Um, you know, serial and before making a murder and all those other, you know, kind of true crime, you know, things that have hit lately, you know, a lot of like TV, you know, legal shows and yeah. crime shows and your CSIs have that element oh, to, to sure. it already. Like, the language is there. Yeah, exactly. But bringing, a, bringing a comedic take on it. Um, we thought was it was like beyond high time, yeah. and, and I'm, I'm sure there'll be a version of it that will be kind of a simpler execution. Mm-hmm. You know, it was like when I uh, when I first came out here, everyone wanted like when I first moved out here, everyone wanted. I was working with a bunch of guys from the Onion, and everyone wanted like the Onion as a TV show, mm-hmm. and we did a version of that for Fox. We did like a pilot. It wasn't called The Onion. It was called Deadline Now. And at the same time, they were developing The Daily Show at Comedy Central with Craig Kilborn. And that was like the way simpler version of the show. It was like it had an audience. You knew where you were supposed to laugh. Mm. It like had a you know defined like a host that had like a comedic perspective in Kilborn. Um, segments were kind of inherently funny in a certain way. And the show that we did was like a bone dry take on the news, mm-hmm. you know, which the onion later did about 10, 15 years later. Yeah. But at the time, like there was no way that was going to work. Right. It was but like, that's also the tone of the onion. I know you were like, doing it was in a studio, no laugh track, no audience. Uh, we cast actors, not comedians. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we gave it the most polished look we could with the money we had. Mm-hmm. And we kept on trying to make it drier and drier and drier. Like, <laughs> Like no winking, no smiling, no cutaways, no, you know, no close up, nothing that would indicate comedy, comedy, comedy. <laughs> and like, I think Fox liked it. You know, this was 1997 or something yeah. like that. I mean, there just there was no way they were going to put it on the air, though. Sure. Well, um, and I feel like you would they wouldn't put it on the air now. No one would. I mean. That's again a sort but of. But IFC, you know, the IFC yeah, onion, and then I think there was that, uh, the sports one also. And those both had a production value and a sheen and a style that was way more equivalent to what we were going for, mm-hmm. um, you know, in 1997. Um, I, the, the 
first of all, those weren't viable alternatives for us then. There were only right. a few places to go um, with TV shows back in 1997. There just wasn't the landscape there is today. And also, obviously, it's a the sophistication of the audience has changed significantly. I mean, comedy is so much different now than it was 15, Absolutely. 20 years ago. Yeah, I mean, it's, I guess, comedy bang bang yeah. is the, the equivalent, right? Like exactly. That sort of super dry. But, yeah. you know, do you get to do that if you don't hang it on Scott, if you don't hang it on Ackerman and it doesn't have 300 podcasts in that audience? Totally. I mean, that is super dry. But I mean, I also think a lot of the kind of more, I mean, I almost call it like Dadaist comedy. There's like a lot of really weird shit now yeah. that there was literally, That's there true. wasn't really an internet, you know, in that way where, you know, comedy was kind of traded and exchanged. There was still this kind of idea, like the idea of a viral video or anything like that. This didn't exist then. Mm. So you're really just looking at a handful of platforms mm. for comedy besides live. Yeah. Um, I mean, even Mr. Show, which was like avant-garde, <laughs> like that started out as a live show, That's you true, know, yeah. and then HBO like gave them like four or six. Right. And even then they never... They were behind it, but they weren't like fully behind yeah. it. Like they knew it was good, but they just couldn't sell it to a big audience. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, all right, we're talking about the past. stuff you're working on now. Past. <laughs> it's all past. No, but this is this is leading to <laughs> yes. uh, the pilots that you're working on now. And here's our edit point. Let's go. <laughs> yes, this is where we begin. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, so what are what are the pilots you have going on now? Um, so this year, I, uh, I instead of doing two, I decided to do three um, just to try to increase uh, the odds. I'm not writing all three. Right. You know, you, in my position, I can, you know, do t- like two or three things. I can like come write one on my own. I can collaborate with someone, like I did with Pally um, last year. The other pilot I did, I wrote with Nick Frost mm-hmm. um, to star in. And I love, you know, I'm collaborative by nature. I love working with people. So um, it's just more fun. You know, Absolutely. So, yeah. um, so, la- so you can write one by yourself. You can write one with another person or you can supervise, mm-hmm. you know, and, and the ideas that you can supervise can be your idea that you kind of farm out or share with some people that you, you know, like, um, or they can bring you an idea that's really cool. Um, or you can kind of work on something together and come up with the idea and develop it. Usually it's younger writers or mm-hmm. people who don't have the, the experience, uh, doing it this way. So this year, I'm supervising two things and writing one by myself. The things I'm supervising are... Everything's at ABC, which is also right. unusual. Uh, usually, you try to spread it around a little bit, but this year, for various reasons, you know, everything ended up at, at ABC. Mm-hmm. And frankly, if like for the tone and the and the specificity of what these shows are, it's probably the best place for right. them. Um, well, that's the thing that everyone's sort of contending with now too: is that every network, every studio has their voice. Yes. So yes. in many ways, it makes the target clearer, totally. but it also is, can be very limited. Totally. I mean, I think. Fox changed things up a little bit this year with um, Last Man on Earth, yeah. you know, which for I know for a lot of my comedy writer friends is like a really great thing because yeah. it feels like, oh, OK, if a show with that kind of premise can work on yeah. any level, then maybe they'll give a shot to something that isn't just your kind of down the middle family, Absolutely. dysfunctional family. Here's a twist on a family. Here's an ethnic family. <laughs> here's a slightly, you know, contemporary <laughs> workplace. You know, but I mean, if you're writing your pilot, <laughs> those are your options. Yeah, exactly. Um, so 
one of the shows um, I'm doing was actually the first thing I started uh, working on was a, from a book that the that ABC had optioned. It was from a couple writers who didn't have a ton of experience in television. One of them is more of like an essayist, and you know Sloan Crosley is her name. She writes, oh, sure. yeah, she writes, yeah, yeah. you know, kind of um, humorous essays. Mm-hmm. She just wrote her first novel. Um, she's really funny. Um, and Neil Shaw, who's a writer who's been around for a little bit, okay. and they teamed up and wrote this book called Read Bottom Up. Up, which oh, is yeah. uh, like an epistolary book, which yeah. is all texts and emails, and it's like the evolution and de-evolution of a relationship mm-hmm. told exclusively through texts and emails between the core couple and each has a best friend. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously, it's an epistolary book. How does that translate to television? That was kind of the challenge. Um, I kind of... I like the book, I like the voice, and I like them. Mm-hmm. And as a supervisor, it's not all on you to figure it out. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, I'll take that on. But how? So they wrote the book and they're writing. They wrote the, the book and so they're writing the, the script. When you sit down to work out work out the script, how how involved and in depth do you get? How much of your voice is in there? Like, what what is your role it, for them specifically? It will totally depends on the project. It depends right. on the nature you know, of the project, the nature of the experience of the writers. You know, so there's. Um, it, it, it depends It kind of wildly on the project. This one, they're both smart and funny and savvy, um, but the biggest challenge was figuring out, like, what the, the TV show analog is to that book yeah. because, like, reading – there hasn't been a show yet that's been able to really, like, kind of nail the kind of, like, how texts are fun to watch mm-hmm. on television, <laughs> you know? I mean, Mindy tried it and, like, they, it was okay, but, like, mm-hmm. there hasn't really – nobody's really gotten that form and that voice down perfectly, so we couldn't really rely – on that. So we basically spent a ton of time talking about that. And I was, you know, you know, those were a lot of like long meetings and phone calls and, you know, back and forth and emails and things like that. And we really worked together kind of figuring out the voice of the show, figuring out the way in, um, you know, adapting the characters from the book and expanding them a little bit because you can't just do a TV show that has four people like that, at least not for 24 of them. If you're doing Catastrophe, which is a fantastic (laughs) show, I mean, you can limit your cast, you know. Yeah, you're doing six episodes and we're going to do pretty much just a stories yeah. for 22 minutes and you can get away with it but you just can't do that if you're trying to do 23 sure. so we were building out the universe a little bit and i you know I, I worked with them a lot i mean and we you know there's stages the good thing about this process is there's really big stages like demarcation mm-hmm. so you know you you come up with your story area you come up with, you know i'm talking about after the show is sold obviously um you come up with your story area you get that approved you go from story area to outline you know you have a you know seven eight nine ten page outline that kind of gives every scene of the mm-hmm. show you know some of the jokes you try to hold back on the jokes because those things right you know aren't as funny the second time <laughs> or third time or 90th time um and then once the outline's approved, you go off to script, and you know, so you're kind of all with them every step of the way. They're off doing you know most of the writing, but they're sending you stuff, and you're sending them back notes, and you're getting on the phone, and we got to dig in a little deeper on this. So it's, I mean, I love the process, mm-hmm. and I'm at, you know because I'm a writer too, like I try to be as like maximally respectful sure. while also like having like a gentle kind of guiding hand. Like this is what I think works and why. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, so, it's an interesting role because it's not quite showrunner, right? It's your your collaborative partner, yeah, trying to get their idea totally to the best, totally, place. totally, That's and you know, and. Listen, I mean, I, I said to them and I said to the other people I'm working with, like, listen, at the end of the day, like, this is your show. And if you feel strongly about something, it has to be in there because the odds are yeah. so low of getting something picked up 
that um, it'd be really sad if it didn't get picked up and it wasn't even something that you liked or were proud of or felt was you know, representative of your voice. So mm-hmm. I'm going to defer yeah. to you no matter what, but I'm also going to give you a strong opinion because, like, that's what you need. You right. need someone who's going to not just, like, yes you. Someone outside the camp yeah. who is really helpful. Yeah. Um, so that was so All that right. so that that's proj- still in contention. That's yeah. Everything was just turned in last week. Okay. Everything's being read this week. I know this isn't yeah. going to air uh, until probably after we have word on all these things, um, and then we'll probably find out uh, a, you know in a week or two from now. So cool. um, this is kind of like this kind of lull slash. There's a lot of nervous writers in town this week uh, trying to figure out whether they're going to be super busy or <laughs> sad. <laughs> um, so yeah, so that's that one. And that's a pretty, you know, you know, saying straightforward feels like kind of damning, but it's a pretty straightforward romantic kind of comedy about young people dating in the city, basically. Mm -hmm. Um, It just has a really strong voice and a strong point of view, which hopefully makes it good. Um, The other show is is a show that was uh, something that was started out with an idea of mine. I brought in these two young writers who I love, uh, Rob Turbovsky and Matteo Borghese. I don't know if you have come across them. They're fantastic guys. And extremely talented. Um, they've worked on Silicon Valley. They worked on It's Always Sunny. Like really, really funny guys, and just good, good guys. So you know, working with good people, as you know, is like the most important thing Absolutely. because it's life's too short. And a lot of this <laughs> stuff, and I don't care how talented people are, if they're not like good people, like mm-hmm. just you know, it's not worth it. And they're great guys, and we, you know, I was friendly with them socially, and I, you know, and knew a lot of people would work with them, and they're always being pulled into writers' rooms to mm-hmm. punch up and to work on, you know. Um, scripts to, that need some help and they've you know had some really nice credits and I just thought it'd be really fun to do something with them. So I pitched them an idea loosely based on my kind of going to Cape Cod every summer as a Bostonian. We would go to Cape Cod every summer as a family and for some reason, even though it was only like a week of the summer, mm-hmm. it like was the strongest memory I had yeah. from my childhood and there's something about summer and like everything that happens, whether it's when you're a kid or as you're going through adolescent or even now that I'm going back there as an adult and going as a parent and I'm there with my dad and my kids mm-hmm. and I'm seeing patterns repeat and, you know, and I've become someone that's not necessarily my parents, but I see my Myself and them, and I'm, beha- I'm parenting in a way, you know. And my sister's commenting on it, and it, it was just through the generations. I thought it was really interesting, and we just kind of started talking, and they came up with an idea um, based on that, which was basically. And I really have an aversion to family comedies because, you know, listen, I love Modern Family. I worked on worked on it for three years, and it's a, it's a quality show for sure. But I just feel like there's a real exhaustion in telling those stories, and and I was exhausted after three years. Sure. I can't imagine, you know, what it's like doing that for seven, eight, ten years. It's hard. Um, so how can you kind of do a family show that feels like like maybe you're doing it in a way that feels a little different? And the idea was the show takes place in 1996, 2016, and 2036. Hmm. And it's one family who goes to this cabin, and you're seeing them in, you know, 1996 is when the family's falling apart. You know, mom and dad are getting a divorce. Hmm. The kids are entering adolescence. It's a big summer of change. Jump ahead to 2016. The family hasn't been there since 1996. Uh, they are coming together, back together for the first time. Mom and dad are divorced, but mom's remarried. Dad's single. Dad's little oh, birds are flying from mom. The kids are now kind of like fucked up adults with their own <laughs> problems. One of them has kids of her own who are starting to. 
And then you're jumping ahead to 2036. And besides, like, fucking flying cars and <laughs> awesome, you know, <laughs> weird tech, um, you're seeing that the mom and dad have gotten back together late in life and mm. have had this, like, kind of second, you know, uh, yeah. act to their marriage. Yeah. And that the fuck up son has gotten it together. While meanwhile, like, the type A, you know, uh, daughter has kind of fallen apart a little bit. So, like, you're seeing these people through these different stages of life played by the same actors. Mm. Uh, minus the teenagers, right. obviously. Um, and I, I was like, that's a great idea. Like, that's I want really that's, that's a show I want to like be a part of in yeah. any way. Like, it's really cool. It's got some challenge, production challenges, but it also, you know, it's one location. It's a kind of small yeah. and closed cast. Each episode jumps around in time. You know, sometimes it's all taking place in one time period, but sometimes it's all three. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just, I was like, that's a really cool, fun show. This and, feels like another one that you have to that you have to spec but did you guys sell the pitch well yeah we sold that yeah That's it was really a really good pitch and those guys again are really funny mm-hmm. have a strong point of view the characters are really interesting and you know i give the networks at least abc a ton of credit because they don't always put this stuff on the air um they rarely put it on the air but they take a chance on these scripts you know mm-hmm. like if they're gonna do if they're gonna buy I don't know what they buy, 60, 80. I mean, who knows yeah. how many they buy? A lot. They buy a lot of scripts. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, it's good for them for taking a flyer on some stuff that, mm-hmm. you know, is ambitious. You know, it's a, it's a very kind of hard kind of thing to land. But if you land it, you know, you have something really special. That's like a really special show if yeah. it works. I'm really curious to hear the nuts and bolts of that yeah. pitch. Cause we, and I asked this, you know, totally selfishly because we're working right. on a couple of right. sort of complicated pitches. And... I just always feel like they're taking so long. Yeah, yeah. You know? It's hard because you can have an idea for a show that, like, on a one-line version, like, sounds really cool. Mm -hmm. And then the act of explaining it, the pitch is, like, such a weird part of the process because it's the only part of the process where your talent as a writer almost has no bearing, (laughs) you know? And it's like all of a sudden you have to become an actor and a performer Mm -hmm. and a showman. It's, like, so (laughs) uncomfortable and it, it it seems anathema to the entire creative process, frankly. Absolutely. It's, you're selling. And, I mean, yes, you should need to be able to talk about your idea in a competent way that explains it to people. And I wish that's what a pitch was. But, mm-hmm. like, you know, pitches have a lot of, you know, pizzazz. It has to be a show. Yeah, that's yeah. a little bit of, you know, some people script their pitches. Some yeah. people have a lot of visual aids. And, uh, you so, know. So, for example, on this pitch, and it, it's a little weird to talk about yeah. something that we don't know if yes. we're ever going to see. But I think you've done a good job explaining it here. Oh, well, thank you. What did the pitch actually look like? That's why I do this. <laughs> Seriously, that's all, all I want is to be understood. <laughs> well, we've gotten to the <laughs> Uh, what did that pitch look that, like? And uh, as you say, like having three it, funny people in the room goes a you long know, way. It was a complicated pitch, but it was helped by the fact that I got to kind of helicopter in and just be kind of like comic relief. And mm-hmm. they did all the lifting on it. Mm-hmm. Um, and we also, for a show like that, we did do like character boards where mm-hmm. we took archetypes. We took like Wally Shawn and Jane Curtin and you know p- people who you sure. have pictures of from you know multiple time periods. And along as we were explaining the show, we would kind of bring out these pictures. Mm-hmm 
characters, and then we had a board on how the family all relates to each other, and we kind of had this like nuclear family in 1996, and then by 2016, when there were some remarriages and some new children, we had this kind of more Benetton ad feeling, <laughs> you know, board. So you kind of funny. see what's kind of funny about it through the through the years yeah. visually, which helps a lot. Absolutely. It's, I mean, it's a it was a very complicated pitch that those guys kind of distilled down to the essence of the show, mm-hmm. um, which is really about how the more things change, the more they stay the same, especially when it comes to family. Um, and, you know, being able to do that a lot of times, you know, part of the pitch was just talking about how, like, on Modern Family, a lot of times you'd have in, you know, the third act when you're doing your kind of wrap up thing, you have Ed O'Neill. Um, talking about how, geez, when I was married mm-hmm. to your mom, you know, talking to his kids, to, to Ty Burrell and Julie Bowen, you know, when I was married to your mom, I did this this way. And it's a, it's got a, and you need it because it's like closure and wrap up and mm-hmm. everything like that. But we're like, well, what if you could just see that stuff? Like, what if you were actually, gotcha. the stories you were telling weren't um, telling about that stuff were actually showing those things. And yeah. you didn't have to have this kind of, you know, wrap up kind of homily kind of feeling. Mm-hmm. But instead, you're kind of like taking that journey with the characters and understanding why the sister thinks the brother is a narc in the present <laughs> is because he kind of ratted her out on something in the past, you know? So it's funny. I mean, it's it really is. The stories are sitcom stories. Total sitcom stories. I mean... How they're told, right? I mean... Totally. That's I mean, really we're, we, our really intention smart. is to Im- embrace the, every mm-hmm. single hackneyed, tried and true <laughs> sitcom story, but just tell it in this different way, you know, mm-hmm. and and tell it with, uh, you know, obviously, again, it's all about the characters. So, you know, a, story, a hackneyed story can be a great story if you're telling Absolutely. it really well. So, yeah. um, but no, I mean, we one of the, the stories we pitched, which I loved, was about um, the older daughter who was kind of like a goody two shoes as a teenager. It's her summer before she's going off to college. She's a virgin. She's never kissed a guy. She has this big time crush on this, you know, kind of like dummy, dumb townie at, down at the lake, you know, who's like a lifeguard or something. And the idea for the for that episode was we're kind of seeing the evolution of her relationship with this guy. So it's like, you know, in, in the past she's obsessing over this guy and all she wants to do, her goal for the summer is to try to get this guy. And he's just like an object to her. And then in the present, she like runs into him at the gas station when she's like a high powered kind of successful career woman with a husband and a family. And she sees him and he's like pumping gas or something (laughs) like that. And she's like, I fucking dodged a bullet. She has like a kind of superficial interaction with him and uh, and but you're hearing her you know say to in her family like wow i really you know dodged a bullet on that one and then in the future when she is kind of a little wiser she's kind of snapped she doesn't have her big job anymore she's kind of doing like more of like a um you know kind of stevie nicks gypsy witch <laughs> you know like the hippie thing and she runs into him in the town at the local bar and for like the first time in 40 years she actually has a real conversation with him you know and we're like that's, that's like cool. a really cool story that you can only yeah. tell on this show and you know we so we were really i mean so much of it when you're pitching an idea is, you know, kind of the enthusiasm and passion, you know, mm-hmm. that you bring to it. And there was a lot of it for this. Um, I love the idea. The, the guys really love the idea. That's kind of infectious. And it makes you, I think, as a buyer, 
makes you want to believe, oh, these guys can do this. <laughs> you know? Absolutely. Like, they want to stay yeah, too. Exactly. Uh, that's really cool. That's, that yeah. sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, and then the third thing is um, something I'm doing for Marvel, mm-hmm. um, which is their first foray into comedy. Yeah. Um, like comedy comedy. I mean, I think a lot of their stuff is has a lot of humor shot through it, which is really cool. But this is their first kind of like definitive comedy. And it's based on a kind of lesser known property mm-hmm. of theirs called Damage Control, um, which has like a culty following. I was but, say, but like yeah. comics readers know. Yeah, com- comic. Most of my like kind of comic book friends yeah. when like word came out that I was doing it, like contacted me and like, were <laughs> familiar with it. Um, as like a kind of superficial comic book person, I wasn't aware of mm-hmm. it. The premise is super, you know, straightforward and in a good way, like mm-hmm. very kind of you know obvious kind of premise. It's the people who clean up after the superheroes make a mess and. The comic book, you know, I didn't spend a lot of time. I mean, I obviously read them all, but like I didn't spend a lot of time trying to figure out, geez, how does this translate? Right. And they didn't really want me to. They were just like, just take the concepts, yeah. take the world. It sounds like, like what they're looking for. And, and yeah. what I assume you did is a workplace comedy in the Marvel Universe. <laughs> totally. That's exactly what it is. And the, and, and the thing I said to them was, and I'm really glad that they – were similar, like like minded. They're really really smart over there. And I said, like, listen, like this can't be about like the borrowed interest of like is Iron Man gonna like drop by? Yeah. You know, it can't be about that. Yeah. First of all, I think it'll be a nightmare trying to like <laughs> you know like that IP you know is very very sacred and it's and, a huge machine. Yeah, you know? and you just don't want to get into a world where you're like writing in Captain America, but you're getting you know <laughs> not even like Ant Man. You're getting like Ant Man's cousin. Yeah. You know, like you just don't want to be in that world. Right. Uh, you know, when you have to like rely on that borrowed interest rather than just like the interest that you can generate through your world and your characters, you're really putting yeah. yourself at a disadvantage. And they totally agreed, and they were I think they were relieved, you know. Um, so I really went set about like doing a grounded workplace comedy where like that kind of superhero stuff it exists in this world and it's what that world is, but it's very much on the periphery. That's and really um, so that was that that was and that is. It's a it's a really fun show, and probably given the scale of it and everything like that, probably has the best shot at least of going a pilot of everything I'm doing. Um, but it's a challenging show because tonally, you know, you you know, I love Parks and Rec, mm-hmm. I love Brooklyn Nine Nine, I like shows that are you know they're they're funny. And some, and you know, Brooklyn can be like silly at times, but they're kind of grounded, you know. And but you have this Marvel world, and you have people and villains who turn people to stone, and you have you know aliens who have destroyed half of New York a few years ago. Like, so you kind of have to kind of fold that in in a way. Interesting. So it, but I like I love the smallness. I love like you're spending too much on coffee, you know. Yes. (laughs) Like that to me is funny. Like pettiness, smallness. Because if you anyone who's ever worked any place. Like, that's the shit that gets under your skin Absolutely. about your coworkers. It's like, I can't fucking believe they're eating my food out of the fridge. It's Jerry you know? took my lunch. Yes, exactly. But Jerry's turned to stone. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> exactly. So kind of during the development process, finding that balance was that's was fun. really challenging. Was there a lot of back and forth with ABC and Marvel? Or a ton, was it a ton. And, you know, listen, everyone is – really smart and everyone is good you know so but like there's agendas you know and like I'm the guy in the middle trying to figure out how to you know make ABC happy and how to make Marvel happy and how to for me to be happy and you know it's the price you pay for like being able you know to do it 
this way and like mm-hmm. I'm like I'm excited to be you know doing something with Marvel it's a company that really understands how to make entertainment that people enjoy yes, <laughs> you know absolutely. like that's a huge <laughs> thing you know usually you're on your Consistent, own right? <laughs> you know yeah, so so I'm I'm really hopeful about it and I, I love the experience and I you know I, I really can't say enough good things about nice. the people I've been working with that's over great there. to hear yeah um, how long have you been doing Scripted narrative. I mean, you were on Daily Show forever, and yeah. a lot of the stuff you did before that was sort of in that vein. Yeah. How long have you been at, at narrative? Um, well, you know, when I first came out here, I came out here right after a few years at The Onion, um, after I graduated from college. Mm-hmm. And I was doing pilots, you know, when I was like 25, 26 years old, like just, you know, writing scripts, you know, selling things. Mm-hmm. Um, the only thing that got made was The Onion, um, mm-hmm. was The Onion Show, which was called Deadline Now. But the but I had been writing those scripts and I enjoyed the process. And then when the Daily Show job came around, it was kind of, you know, too good to be true, basically. You know, at the time, I didn't know it was going to be anything more than just like a, maybe a couple of years as like the head writer. I loved John. He was taking over for Kilborn. Yeah. So I kind of put a hold. I think I might have done one or two more pilots um, even after I came to New York to work on the yeah. show because I had a deal that I had to honor. Oh, okay. um, but... <clears throat> After The Daily Show became, like, a bigger thing, just commitment-wise, and also, like, I started moving up a little bit there, it just became the full thing in my life. So that was probably, you know, six or seven years. And then toward the end of The Daily Show, you know, John and I had a production company. You know, we did Colbert. We also did, a, you know, a couple movies, um, a documentary. We had a couple pilots. So we were, like, kind of starting to get back into I, You know, as a writer, you want to tell stories of different lengths, and Absolutely. there's something very satisfying about doing late night and shorter comedy it's immediate uh there's a there's a um a nice kind of payoff to be able to do something that day and see it that night um but you want to sometimes you want to tell longer stories that have you know more kind of emotional texture to them and it's very hard to do that (laughs) in a daily show environment so i always wanted to get back into scripted so when i left the daily show i you know i made a deal with hbo that was doing movies and tv stuff and some internet stuff and all that stuff was narrative and and then I started doing some movies, and I did this movie Fifty Fifty, mm-hmm. which came out of my deal with HBO, and that brought me back to LA. And I thought I was going to do movies for a while, but you know, there's been such a shift, as you know, <laughs> from features to television in terms yeah. of like the creative um, interest and 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 just the diversity and opportunity. It's just such a writer's medium uh, in a way that film has just kind of ossified and become. It's very hard. Yeah. I mean, it took me ten plus years to get this indie movie made that I started writing when I was at the Daily Show, oh, wow. and that had like a three or four million dollar budget, yeah. and it took ten years to get someone to That's get behind insane. that. And in those ten years, like I probably produced and wrote like hundreds, you know, <laughs> if not thousands of hours of television. It's crazy. Yeah. So it really that shift is just too pervasive to. Yeah. So I pretty much what, once I got back here after doing Fifty Fifty, which we shot in Vancouver, mm-hmm. um, I pretty much you know was back into television and trying to do trying to do TV and movies and keep mm-hmm. a foot in movies because I I think I like the movie making process a little more than a TV making process. This is, this is what I wanted to ask about cuz you seem like especially like having gone through late night and then working in room like you seem like a room guy, you seem like a collaborative guy and 
feature writing is so solitary. Oh, I don't like writing movies. I like making movies. There's a huge difference. The non-solitary part. <laughs> yeah, no, no. Writing movies is hell. It's so hard. <laughs> writing a good movie is so hard because most people, you know, you can get a script to, like, be working, like, 70%. Like, that's not hard. It's getting that last 30%. Mm-hmm. And, like, usually when you're getting notes at the end of a, of a process, you know, the script is, like, working, but it's just not working well enough for people to feel totally confident. So all you're trying to do is kind of, like, get that last, whether it's 30% or 20%, or it's never going to be 100%. Right. There's never been a script in the history that's 100%. But, like, you know, if you have 85% or 90%, you're good to go. And you're getting these notes, and you're addressing the notes, and it's a fucking zero-sum game. You're like, you've improved the things that the notes want, but you because you had to take things away, you've also heard it in a certain way. Mm-hmm. And it's so frustrating. Writing movies is so hard. I mean, I have such unbelievable admiration for the people who are really good at it. I worked mm-hmm. with this guy, Howard Franklin, last year. Unbelievable screenwriter. Been doing it forever. Mm-hmm. And... You know, he, he understands that process. He understands like what it takes to to you know do something of that length. And TV is so much easier, <laughs> but making a movie is so much more fun because that's like, hey, everybody, let's put on a show, mm-hmm. and it's yeah, it's it's sense. finite. You know, the yeah. you there's a there's a run up, there's pre production, there's first day of shooting, there's production. You finish, you wrap. There's a party, it's a celebration. Then you're editing, and it's like you're in the editing room, you're fixing it, you're getting your music, you're screening it. Then you have a premiere, then you go. It's in the theaters, and then it's done. <laughs> you know. Sure. And and like that, that has a, there's a life cycle there that makes sense. And in television, the reward for doing excellent work <laughs> is you have to do better work tomorrow. <laughs> but I mean, you've been in the position where you are doing like The Daily Show. You guys were making a better show every day. And, you know, sometimes you know, you're lucky when you're doing a daily show because you're judged in this different way. You're judged yeah, kind of true. on this totality. Like there'd be crappy shows. There'd be like okay shows. Oh, that was a really good show on Wednesday. Thursday kind of sucked. Monday was pretty good, you know. Mm-hmm. And then, But you're just kind of judged kind of over a, a length of time because there's so many episodes. Um, but, you know, you, if you... Uh, this was the feeling you had so much and it really, you know, you have to have a certain t- temperament for it. You know, you, you finish a show on like a Wednesday and it's a great show. And you're, you're just feeling high coming back stage after you after the taping and you have to talk about thursday and then you do thursday's show and thursday show is not that good and then you have like the weekend to kind of sit with that you know and then because you don't do a show on friday <laughs> and then you come back in and you try it again so it's like th- that kind of like life cycle of the joy is <laughs> is like compressed and like right. and also the the bad side of it is also compressed too right. if you're feeling but it like, really is it's much more like a job right yeah it's not the let's put on a show feeling all definitely the time not definitely not you, you, you can't have that feeling you can yeah. ever you can never like rest on forget about your laurels you just can't ever really rest because the second you rest you get behind mm-hmm. and when you're behind like everything suffers you have to stay on top of things has that been your experience on shows that aren't yours also no, like, that's been only my experience on late night okay. you know in variety late night like, shows i mean modern family is a good show and they churn it out. They do how many? Twenty two. Yeah, they do twenty four, which are, is very hard. And believe me, at the end of the year, you're really sweating those last few yeah. episodes. But you know, there's just no comparison in terms of how hard it is to produce a show every day, four oh, days a week, with no 
hiatus longer than two weeks. I mean, it's just like there's a drain on your, your energy. I mean, those days are so packed because you're, you know, when you're on a staff of a TV show that is episodic, you know, you're either in the writer's room or you're, you know, in production. When you're in production, you're not in the writer's room. You're in production on your episode. It can be a long day of shooting. It can be a short day of shooting. But you're shooting that episode with a full crew. You know, when you're working on a late night show, you're in writing and production at the same time, at Mm -hmm. the same day, and it's all compressed into, you know, a 24-hour cycle. You know, sometimes you come in to a day with material banked, but a lot of times in a 22-minute show, you're writing 10, 15 minutes of content, producing content, you know, getting graphics together, editing footage. You know, it's really, I mean, everyone's working so hard and so fast, and there just isn't that same urgency by definition of, course, of you know, yeah. so it's, I mean, I, I like would eat my meals like hunched over like an animal, <laughs> hunched over a paper plate, <laughs> like eating like chicken korma, it dripping down <laughs> onto the script. And you're like, you can't read the words because there's like some gross oily stain on it. You were like an animal, <laughs> you know, for seven years. I mean, it was awesome. I'm not complaining. Well, but. And, and this is the thing. I mean, and, and I'm sure you've sort of talked this yeah. out to death and it's been a while, but, and, you know, we, I talked to Opus and the right. Colbert guys. Um, But I don't think I've talked to any Daily Show writers who have been there as long as you were and who ran the show. What did your day-to-day look like? Um, Well, I I think the... Oil stains on the script kind of <laughs> tells you what you need yeah, to know. It's representative. No, it's a good I mean, no, it's, it, the time, you know, days flew. Mm-hmm. There was never, like, there was no, like, this idea, at least, you know, for, like, the, a core group of us, like, this idea of there being, like, downtime at work. Um, you know, like, I'm going to check my emails right. or I'm going to, you know, I'm going to, like, go, I'm going to call a friend or I'm going to, like, check out this video that someone sent me, you know, like, there isn't, there's almost no time for that. You're literally, from the moment you get in to the moment you leave, you're just kind of going, which is kind of good in a way because like, you're not bored. Right. Um, it's exciting. It's exciting. Uh, you're making something. You, you really feel like you're making something, mm-hmm. which is awesome um, because a lot of times you're like, what am I doing exactly? Sure. Um, so that part is great. Uh but it was, you know, you come in in the morning and if you're, you know, in the, on the writing side of things, I was like leading the writers uh, meetings and kind of figuring out. What the, time would you guys get in? It changed over the years. We weren't like crazy early people, but we, you know, get in. I want to say like people would roll in between eight and nine and meetings would get started by nine, nine thirty. John would be coming in, you know, usually like, I don't know, I want to say by 10 Again, this all kind of changed mm. over the years. But um, once John was in, you know, I would kind of go from the writer's meeting to, to his office and we'd kind of go over the schedule for the day. After that, we'd have a whole office production meeting mm. um, that I would kind of run through. OK, here's the rundown. Here's this. Here's that. Anticipate these graphics. Anticipate this. We're going to have to go out and shoot something out on you know 47th Street. We need a mm. deli storefront, you know, whatever. Just running through the production for the day. By the time that meeting's over... Scripts are coming in. Mm -hmm. The writers have been working for two, three hours at that point. Scripts are coming in. I'm back into John's office. We're probably eating lunch, reading scripts, you know, starting to figure out with the script supervisor, script coordinator, what the script is going to look like. She then goes off, uh, would go off and kind of put together like a Mm -hmm. rough in with the help with the writer's assistant kind of assembling Mm -hmm. the jokes. I mean, it's a very kind of. Um, while that's happening, you're down in edit, looking at you know field pieces for that day, or looking at whatever you know 
clip compilations, you know, kind of starting to walk, talk, uh, walk through graphics with the graphics people. We need an over the shoulder that says wow. this. It looks like this. Then you're coming back in and you have to, it would either be me when I was head writer or David Javerbaum when he was head writer would then kind of turn that kind of, um, you know, Frankenstein, you know, right. draft of the <laughs> script into something that had connective tissue and, you know, and, and a feeling, you know, it has to feel like a, like a script. And, at that point, more drafts are coming in. If we were doing a bit with a correspondent, you're either working with, you know, if you're working with like John Oliver, you're working with Colbert, you're probably working in the room with mm-hmm. them. Some of the other correspondents, you, the writers would just write and they, were, they mm-hmm. were kind of, they would give their feedback, but it usually would be kind of a little later in the day. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so you're, you know, again, you're writing th- through the mid-afternoon and then by like four or five o'clock, you got to get down to rehearsal, you know? <laughs> so then you're rehearsing. And the craziest thing, there's an audience, I mean, you, it's really, <laughs> there's an audience like gathering outside. If you look out your window, you can see the line forming. You're like, we don't even have fucking half a show, right? <laughs> and like, they're expecting a show. So you're, yeah, it's, I mean, it's breakneck at times. Um, and then, then rehearsal was crazy because you put everything up on its feet for the first time. There's obviously no studio audience. There's just the crew and some shit just doesn't work. Work. You know, the graphic looks stupid. That joke is supposed to sound like this. It doesn't sound like that. So there would be times that, you know, me, John, and maybe one other person would, like, rewrite half the show, two-thirds of the show, just in the time between the audiences loading in and the taping, you know, because you got to tape. If you keep an audience... Um, you know, cooling their heels for too long, they're not going to laugh. So it doesn't matter how good your, Absolutely. you know, content is. Like you're not going, we, we never goose the laugh, right. you know, the, the laugh track or anything like that. There's n- nothing like that. So if you got a cold room, it's like a cold room. You're going to feel it at home. Mm-hmm. It's going to affect the performers. You know, John is like a real performer in like a live yeah. environment. So like if it was a you know, the audience was bummed out because they had to wait three hours outside in January in New York. Like, it doesn't matter how good the, the show is, like, it's going to suffer. Yeah. So you have, you're always aware of that, you know, time pressure. Wow. And then you go out there and you tape the show and you tape it to time. You know, you mm-hmm. do it as if it's a live show. So, you know, sometimes we would stop and have to go back and do things again. But generally speaking, we would live with any mistake. Mm-hmm. John is a, you know, naturally good improviser. So if there was a screw up, he would be like, it's screw up. And he'd just say it again. We wouldn't go back and redo things. Um, and, uh, yeah, then you finish and then you have, you probably finish around by six thirty, seven o'clock. And then you have a postmortem where you just talk about all the shit that went wrong <laughs> and some of the shit that went right. Um, and sometimes there would be department heads in that meeting. Mm-hmm. Usually it's a, that's a small meeting. And that would happen in the green room right after, right after the show. Oh, wow. Just you, immediate, just let's talk it out. Yeah. And because once you're going back upstairs and John's getting out of his right. suit, you're starting to think, like, I got to get out of here. You yeah. know? And the great thing about The Daily Show, which was unlike some of the other late night shows, I don't know what like now, but back then, like we didn't keep people after taping. Yeah, you know, a lot of a lot of the shows, the writers would during rehearsal or taping, they would eat their dinner and then they'd go back up to their offices and they'd work till ten o'clock, eleven o'clock. I knew people yeah. back in the day who worked at Letterman; they'd be there till two, three o'clock in the morning. Oh, um, Madeline Smithberg, who was the original executive producer of uh, the show, had a great policy. She came from Letterman. She's like, I want people to have lives. I want people to come in energized and excited to work. I do not want people like dreading coming in there because it's this eternal slog. And so everyone, you know, the the writers got to leave. Everyone got to leave basically. I mean, the crew had to stick around to, you know, close up the studio. And if there were, there were sometimes you have to do pull-ups, you know, because you're a little long. So you Mm -hmm. have to do some editing. 
like generally speaking, you know, once we finished the postmortem, I would go up to my office. That's when I would take a look at emails or whatever. And, and, and then I would either like go home and, you know, crash from exhaustion uh, or, um, you know, because I was young and single living in New York, I'd go out and, you right. know, do stupid things. Um, and when I was doing Colbert, too, there was a lot, a lot more back and forth mm-hmm. um, for that. But, uh, yeah, no, it was a crazy – for me, it wasn't a sustainable – you know, seven years, seven and a half years were probably That's like – pretty the, yeah, yeah. It was, but it was not a system. But I was like, you know, when I, I got the job when I was twenty-seven, yeah. and you know, when you're young, you can do things. <laughs> but, but you start breaking down at a certain exactly. point. You know, it's, the body you know, it's a Jewish it. equivalent of being an elite athlete. <laughs> um, the body just can't take it anymore. Um, I want to talk about when when you first got there. Um, that was at the beginning of Stewart's run, right? You came on the same time. He started in January of 99. I started in April of 99. Okay, so, so roughly. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, and I don't remember the show then uh, just because of the mass of it. Mm-hmm. If, you know, like you say, we take it all in. But was there, was there a figuring out of what Jon Stewart's Daily Show was? Do you remember that? Yeah, I mean... <clears throat> yes. I mean, I think there were some things that we really loved about the show under Kilborn, and there were some things that we felt we wanted to change. And part of the reason he hired me was to kind of have a partner in that, because mm-hmm. obviously if you've been at the show and a lot of the writers had been there some, from the beginning, they're not going to be as excited about changing it for the new host, yeah. who, by the way, is a writer and a producer and not someone who comes from a background, which is more like just put it in the prompter and I'll mm-hmm. say it, which was a little more of what Kilborn's kind of uh, energy was. Um, so I don't know a ton about what the show was like under him as far as like, but I definitely got the sense that um, the writers to a certain extent kind of ruled the roost. And all of a sudden you have John coming in who has a point of view and who wants to change some things up. And Oh, by the way, he's bringing in this 27 year old head writer who is younger than almost everyone on the staff. Like it was not like, yeah, it was a, it was a rough, it was a rough beginning. Yeah. Um, but I did John have a, an idea of what he wanted the show or how he wanted his point of view to come across well, I, that he shared with you? Well, I, when we talked, you know, I was living in L.A. at the time. And when I flew to New York to meet with him to talk about it, I mean, he part of the reason, probably the only reason he was interested in me was because I came from The Onion. And mm-hmm. I had, you know, kind of been a big part of that, that voice and developing that voice. And he wanted something that felt a little more kind of topical, a little more satirical. And I think he felt that, and I agreed with him, that The Daily Show like would do kind of current events if it served the purpose comedically. Mm. But they would also have a great time doing a story that was on like the, you know, page 56 of the New York Post just because it was inherently funny. And, And I think both of us felt that if we're going to do a daily news show that's kind of taking off on the news, it should reflect what's actually important to people and what's on the news. So that was early on something, I think even before I took the job, that we we were like very much like-minded about. Mm-hmm. And the challenge was how do you take things that are not inherently funny and make them funny? And The Onion was very successful at that. And I think that was kind of where we initially bonded. Sure. 
And that, and, and that, I think the fact that we kind of shared that ideology, like kind of kept, certainly kept me going mm-hmm. and he kept him supporting me during some kind of rocky moments at the beginning, mm-hmm. because a lot of people were like, fuck you, the show's pretty good. And who are you to come in and say, it's not working and you want to change it. And like, I understand where that comes from. Sure. It's very hard, you know, to, to kind of see that happen. And it was only after I think we started having some success and people started being like, Hey, have you been checking out the daily show? And we started getting nominated for Emmys. Mm-hmm. People were like, Oh, okay. Like, I think we can get on board with this, you know, and and then some people couldn't get on board with it, and they either left or were fired. And and I'm curious about the Colbert conversations too, and like not not necessarily where that show, but where that character came from. Like, were there conversations with Colbert about his persona? Um, well, I mean, it, it, I mean, it most clearly came from O'Reilly, and he was sure. playing a version of that anyway. You know, his kind of arrogant, uh, you know, idiot who doesn't realize he's an idiot character was kind of the character he played on the show without ever really identifying it as Bill, let's take off on Bill O'Reilly. Um, like what if there was a character who just through the force of his opinions and the belief that he was right, you know, even though he's wrong, you know, like, like that is like something that a comedian can really understand and something that Stephen was very well equipped to play. Mm -hmm. Um, whereas Carell, you know, liked to be an idiot, you know, (laughs) like Carell was really funny at being clueless, you know, Colbert like thought he knew everything, and so we kind of had those archetypes already laid into like the characters they were playing on the show, and we ended up doing as a, just like as a lark like a promo for a fictional show called The Colbert Report, like in the spirit of the, the O'Reilly Report. Yeah. Was it called The O'Reilly Report? I think that's what it was. Yeah, because we were calling it the Colbert Report. O'Reilly Factor? O'Reilly Factor. Is that what it was? Yes, it was O'Reilly Factor. So anyway, but, so you we did, this we did the Colbert Report, and it was hilarious. It was 60 seconds, you mm-hmm. know? Um, and it was funny for 60 seconds. And I don't think at the time any of us thought, like, that's a show. Like, none of us thought that. And the, the funny thing was, we knew that we were going to lose Carell and Colbert eventually. They were just too good, mm-hmm. you know? <laughs> and we wanted to do this show... We, <laughs> We had this – I was probably most enthusiastic about this. John was probably not as enthusiastic about this as me. But we had this character on The Daily Show that had n- almost nothing to do – It was everything I said about being topical and relevant <laughs> goes out the window. It was It was Steve Carell was playing Produce Pete. I don't know if you remember it. No. It's so funny, at least to me. Um, but he played this character where he was like, you're green grocer. And it was more of like a local news kind of thing where he's like, what's fresh today? Squash is fresh. Let's talk about what you can do with some summer squash. And But the the, the joke of the character was he, he would come on and he'd want to like talk about like radicchio or something like that. But within seconds, he would be on some horrible, depressing story <laughs> about his life um, and how – and he, like, radicchio would be like the last thing that he would be talking about and – the, the report would like the, the the segment would like kind of devolve into this like dirge of how sad this guy's <laughs> life was, and at the very end he'd pull it back together and be like, "So, ridiculous!" You know, oh my God. we love the character, and before, we knew we were going to lose Carell, that and I was so like Carell, really too. really hard pitching the show called "The Further Adventures of Produce Pete," <laughs> and the concept was this was something we were going to pitch to Comedy Central. The concept was when Carell when Produce Pete leaves the Daily Show. As Produce Pete, not Steve Carell, <laughs> right. 
it's like what happens to him, like, right. you know, so it's like directly, it's like a spinoff of The Daily Show in the way Daria was right. a spinoff of Beavis and Butthead. <laughs> you know, it was like, it was like the most bizarre, it's like a totally different world. Oh God, it, it, so it, it, it lives in a world where The Daily Show exists as a TV show and Protus Pete exists as a person, <laughs> you know, and like we're just hearing like, you know, it, like the second he's leaving The Daily Show studio is when the show starts. And... There's a million reasons why that's not a good idea. <laughs> There's also um, a million reasons yes. why it's a great but idea. But <laughs> at that point, Carell had already done, like, I think he had done the Jim Carrey movie um, mm-hmm. uh, and was and maybe had done Anchor, the first Anchor. I don't know. But he, he was starting to really sure. blow up and he was getting the office. So that ship sailed. And we knew – I was like, listen, if we're going to lose these people – um, maybe we should lose them to things that we're a part of. Yeah. You know, let's not let what happened with Corral happen to Colbert. So we started sitting down, me, John, and Stephen started sitting down and talking about what kind of show hmm. you'd want to do. And, you know, the most natural thing was like, would the Colbert Report, would that work? Would like an anti-daily show, like a talk show in character, like what would that hmm. look like? And we just started talking about it. And I think up through the first episode – I think there were some serious questions on whether it would really sustain itself. Like, how long can this joke really last, you know? And and how much work is this one man capable of doing? Are you capable of doing an interview in character, improvisationally? Yeah. Are you capable of doing a, three segments of a show where, where you're not – you don't have correspondence. You don't have field pieces to throw to. Like, that's like mm. an insane amount mm. of work. The time that he was doing that show, I don't think – most people realize he was probably the hardest working man in show business. Sure. I mean, there is no harder job than doing that show in that character that many days. <laughs> you know, like he That's didn't really have incredible. a lot of people to play with. He yeah. really didn't. Daily Show. You got a guest segment. Right. You know, that's like, you know, John's a naturally good interviewer. You're not writing that. If you're right. doing a character, if you're doing an interview in character, you know, you got to write that, you yeah. know, you have to figure out how would this oh, guy Lord. interview this person. So, yeah. But, you know, once we did the, the first episode, like that first episode had like truthiness in it. And mm-hmm. it was just like, like we, this yeah. is a show. You find <laughs> you know? those things that you can go back. Yeah. To the, yeah. The things that start to take yeah, the weight exactly. off. That's exactly. Um, is there stuff you look at, you can look at now with some distance from Daily Show or Colbert that, you feel like represents you or your best work or your point of view? I would probably say um, the thing that I'm probably most proud of in terms of just being the closest to the idea that I had in my head of what it could be would probably be America the Book. Mm-hmm. That was the book That's we did. It was a book we did while, you know, also while you know, doing the, the Daily Show. And it was, a, again, a huge collaboration. Mm-hmm. There's a ton of people contributing to that in, a, in like, huge and meaningful ways. Um, and it just came out so, like, exactly like I had hoped it would come out. Really? Um, not only that, but it also was really well received, you know. Mm-hmm. And it's like there's some, you know. I can genuinely say that, like, I do this, like, purely for my own self-satisfaction. Like, I just want to feel good about what I'm doing. (laughs) Like, the fact, if other people like it, like, that's just gravy. It Mm -hmm. truly is. So, like, the fact that that process of doing that book and then seeing that book was so incredibly satisfying, like, that would have been enough. Like, 100% would have been enough. The fact that the book also did very well by book standards and was, like, you know, successful in a way that I don't think anything else I've done has been successful in that, like in a, in the medium that it was done mm-hmm. in. You know, like the Daily Show, for all its, you know, 
kind of whatever accolades like was never really seen by that many people it was just mm-hmm. seen by people who like like to s- yeah. say they saw it you know <laughs> and voted on awards and shit yeah and, and yeah but it wasn't like we used to always say that and this is true that on while we were airing an uh on comedy central like a syndicated rerun of Two and a Half Men would consistently beat sure. the Daily Show in the ratings, you know? Oh. Before you get too, like, high on your horse, you know? Like, a, a tiny amount of people are watching this show, you know? So let's not, like, kind of, like, get too excited about, like, the reach. <laughs> let's just, like, get excited about, like, the fact that we like what we're doing and mm-hmm. it seems to be good. Um, but the book, by book standards, was, like, a huge success. It, like, was a number one bestseller for, like, you know, for weeks and weeks and weeks and... You know, like they could sell like like million plus copies, like crazy for a book. I mean, people don't buy books, (laughs) you know. So that felt in in a way that nothing else had really been kind of validated in that way, which which was nice. It was like it was kind of novel, Um, but also really just like you know, books are eternal. They sit on your Hmm. shelf. They you know, there's something about the exactly exactly. So that was probably the thing. And and I just you know, I still pick it up every now and then and just turn to a random page and like laugh. And I I laugh because I think it's funny, but I also remember. Mm-hmm. You know, making it, and I remember going through that process, and it was an even though it was a stressful time, it was like a really enjoyable process. I've laughed harder making that book than probably anything I've ever done. How what, how was the tenor different? Like, could you get away with things? Was it more purely the writer's yeah, well, you perspective? Know, yeah, I mean, when you when you're yeah when you're writing for television, there's always going to be a translator. It's the person saying the words. Sometimes that makes it a lot better. You know, sometimes it makes it worse. Sometimes it changes it completely. Mm-hmm. So, but when you're doing a book, it's one to one, and so you're, you're that's exactly what I intended. <laughs> that's exactly how I wanted yeah. it to look. I worked with the designer to get the graphic to match it that's just right. Cool. Um, so there is something that's more, I think, gratifying. In that way, I mean, television. There's like, there's no authorship in television. Like, very few people can claim authorship in television, and even movies. Really, I don't buy the whole like director. Like yeah. that, that, I think that's bullshit. Um, but there's definitely authorship in books, and even in a collaborative book, you can turn to pages and be like, "I wrote that chapter," mm-hmm. you know. So, um, I don't know. For some reason, that bo- the book just holds like a kind of a weird special spot for me. That's really cool. And you've written another book, is that right? I remembering that. Yeah, I edited uh, an anthology that I also wrote part of. Okay. You know, I wrote a chapter of what about. Is it called? It's called "Things I've Learned from Women Who Dumped Me," and it's <laughs> like a. It was an anthology uh, about you know men writing about failed relationships and stuff that came out of it. Where did, where did this come from? Was were you approached? With this or was this your idea? It was my idea. It was it was actually based on yet another failed TV show. <laughs> um, I early on in my career, I had pitched a show to. NBC, this is before I even worked at The Daily Show, about um, about uh, basically almost like kind of like a Broadway Danny Rose style TV show where it was like a after like a bachelor party and like some diner or something like that and a one of the guys, maybe we didn't know who, uh, or maybe we did, I don't know, it wasn't that worked out at the time, was getting married, and uh, this was kind of people sitting around hmm. telling stories about other relationships, and that we would then jump back and 
each episode of the show would be a relationship, you know, loosely defined. It could have been mm-hmm. a crush, an unrequited That's crush. Right. It could be a crush on a teacher. It could be, you know, a, you know, a seven-year relationship, you know. Um, it could be – and that would be all one episode would be seven yeah. years. And then the next episode could be just like falling in love with someone on a bus, you know, um, who you never really even talked to. And – so th- that was the idea behind the show, and it wasn't really an anthology because it had the same characters in it, but each episode, there, there wasn't really a serialized narrative going mm-hmm. on. And I thought it was just be a cool way to do a relationship show. NBC felt differently. <laughs> they felt quite differently. Um, so I ended up doing a show about a... Uh, life in a ski town. <laughs> yeah, like, like, well, I, I can yeah. see that. It makes yeah. sense too. And um, that one did an air. It's, it's yeah. interesting though. I mean, a number of the projects that came from you that you've described, mm-hmm. um, whether they were made or not, have these sort of framing devices or like an outside perspective. Where do you think that comes from? I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I think that's just – I think you look at um, you know, your way in for telling stories and I think I just appreciate a really well-executed like, device like that. I think, mm-hmm. it's, just, I think it's cool. Um, you need a way in and it's – and I, I – I like the artifice. I, I like being aware of that artifice and you know it's artifice but um, – you, you're okay with it because it works. And I just think mm. with, it's like a really, I mean, I look at like Quentin Tarantino and he, you know, he does these things like he's, he's did it in Kill Bill and he, and he did it in this most recent movie as well, where he does these like chapter one, you know, the, yeah. you know, and it like, it adds this kind of weird level of, um, I don't know. It's like, I don't want to call it gravitas. It's not that, but it just, and Wes Anderson obviously does mm. it all the time. I, I just, I kind of appreciate it when it's well done. Sometimes it's not well done. Um, but yeah, no, I love, I love a cool device. I love, um, you know, Thousand One Arabian Nights. You know, mm-hmm. it's just like that. Thousand One? Yeah, Thousand One. Yeah, that's right. It's not 101. <laughs> the O'Reilly Nights. <laughs> 101 <laughs> O'Reilly Factor Nights. <laughs> um, I mean, it's an interesting thing to hear. And, and it, it just reminds me of a thing Noah Hawley said about Fargo, which was when you put based on a true story mm-hmm. on it. Totally. It gives you a certain license. Totally. Uh, and the audience trusts you, even with the weird stuff yeah. that you want to put in. I always used to wonder, like, when you'd see, like, um, uh, Saving Private Ryan, and you've got, like, the old people talking at the beginning, mm-hmm. and then you've got them, and then you and I'm like, why just, like, start the story, you know? <laughs> but, like, like, that one to me didn't feel as yeah. essential, you know? Yeah. Um, but when it works, you're just kind of like, I mean, like, when I, I think Moonrise Kingdom, like, did mm-hmm. this really nice thing, I don't know, yeah. I just really, like, just made it, just made it feel elevated Well, it seems way. like a lot of it for you, and, and I may be reading this wrong, but is about storytelling as much as the story. Yeah, yes, definitely, definitely. That's, that's an interesting thing, especially considering how long you weren't able to tell narrative stories. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to get it all <laughs> Maybe out. that's what it is. We're just jumping <laughs> yeah, into definitely. it. Definitely. Uh, I think we need to start wrapping up, but... Um, we talked about what you're doing now. We have a lot more to talk about. Will you come back sometime? I would love to. Uh, tell us for now what you are watching on television, <laughs> what you are excited about, what you're talking with, your room, your friends, your loved ones about. Um... I think the show that kind of tickles me the most right now, I loved Master of None. Uh, I know some people uh, are not as big of fans of that, uh, but I love it. I absolutely what do you love, love Master of None? Um, you know, there's a, again, there's, a, there's an artifice that you're aware of, uh, like a stylistic choice that you're aware of that feels 
uh, interesting and um, like they made a choice mm-hmm. rather than it just being vanilla. Um, a couple of the episodes, obviously the parent episode, the Nashville episode, you know, there's that incredible tracking shot at the beginning of the Nashville episode where they're talking about like an Eminem lyric, I think. Mm-hmm. And it's like all one shot. And you're just like, you just don't see that on television, even, mm-hmm. you know, especially comedy drama. I think you can be a little more adventurous. Um, I just appreciate that so much. I love Eric Wareheim. Um, mm-hmm. He's it's to Eric, right? Isn't yeah, it? Yeah, Eric is hilarious in it. I just love him as a as a performer. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, you know, I really appreciate that show. I can't wait for more. I love Catastrophe, although I haven't. I don't know if they the second season has I been think released. It's out, it's, I think by the time this yeah. comes out, it'll be out. Which I've been pushing the first season and, on. Every yeah, time. and then yeah. a show that I absolutely love is The Grinder. I don't know if you if you've watched sure. The Grinder, yeah, yeah. but there's something about it's based on the dating app, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm, I don't know why, why they haven't made more hay out of that. I think they just don't care. No. Um, but That's really good. I think they, there might have been a joke uh, about that uh-huh. um, in the show. But the grinder, like the idea of a character playing – like Rob Lowe is basically playing an insane person. <laughs> he's basically playing an insane person and the only person who knows he's insane is Fred Savage. Sure. And everyone else thinks he's like this like great guy and I find that – it tickles me to know sure. and – Well, I mean look. It's right up your alley, right? It's all <laughs> yes, of these things yes, you've described yeah. where it's, he's a layered yeah. – character layered with fiction. Totally. I mean it's a really totally. interesting It's premise. so interesting. And again, it's, you just don't see that yeah. on TV. TV that often. I mean, it, it, he was literally insane. And Fred Savage, if you ever want to watch that show and watch, Fred is doing such unbelievably yeah. subtle comedic work. I mean, obviously, Rob Lowe is, the, you know, is the, the showier role. But Fred, in his reactions, in his <laughs> eye rolls, in his like turning to his wife and being like, yeah. it. It, he it, has a hundred shades of disbelief. I mean, it's, it's so, so delightful, and yeah. I really hope that show, you know, I think it's doing okay. Mm-hmm. I hope it gets some traction because I think it's so good. And, like, the way they, you know, kind of, like, parallel the kind of procedural stories, they're doing some interesting work on yeah. that show. They've got great joke writers. William Devane is really funny. Um, so, yeah, I, uh, the, I love The Grinder. <laughs> a, I love The Grinder. <laughs> it, it feels to me like a hard show. To write, yes, uh, because of all those those structural elements. I, you know, I think in a certain respect, I, I sympathize with the show and with the writers of the show because they probably are going through the same thing we went through on Colbert, mm-hmm. which is like, can yeah. we sustain this? <laughs> like, sure. do we have? Forget about tw- one season, twenty. Do we have a hundred of these in yeah. us? Like, how is this thing going to? Are people going to get tired of this character being this clueless about? You know this stuff, <laughs> right? And I mean, they're so talented. Uh, I'm, I'm thinking that they'll find an evolution that makes sense, so they don't get tired of it. And that's what good shows do. Um, but uh, I really hope it works uh, because, uh, <laughs> yeah, totally. Uh, ben, thank you so much for being pleasure. Uh, I hope hope to talk again soon. Great. Now leaving nerdist.com. 